Welcome to Unboxing Fulfillment, the modern B2C fulfillment podcast. I'm your host, Chad Rosetta. Our guest today is Jeff Hamilton, a partner at LIDD Supply Chain Consulting. Jeff collects and analyzes client data to create distribution models, which inform the infrastructure and operation design of new distribution facilities. Jeff is part of the LIDD consultants that works across the US, Canada, Mexico, as well as an office in South Korea. Jeff, it's a uh, privilege to have you on the podcast this afternoon. And welcome, sir. Yeah, thanks, Chad. I'm really excited to talk ops today. Yeah, me too. This has been exciting to prepare for. I think a great place for the listeners to get a little sense of your background. I know you're a mechanical engineer by training, but how did you end up where you are today? Yeah, it's a fun story. So I'll start from the beginning. About 10 years ago, I met one of the founders of Lid at a previous job. So I was a private pool manager and he was just a member of the private pool. And we started chatting. Turned out we had gone to the same university, McGill University in Montreal. Just kind of talked about what I was looking to do in my career, what he was doing. He had started this firm. It seemed really interesting to me. He was a mining engineer. I was a mechanical engineer, but he was working in industrial engineering, supply chain operations. And after a few conversations, he agreed to give me an internship. So that was in 2014. So I started learning the business and learning how distribution worked and how supply chains worked while I was still in school. And when it came time to graduate a year later, I was pretty dead set on staying at LID. So I joined the firm in 2014 in Montreal and just stayed and grew through the ranks until about two years ago when I moved from Montreal to LA and started to run our Los Angeles office. And then I was named a partner in January this year. So really come all the way from the ground up doing an intern role. And that's just evolved over time. We were 10 people when I started and now we're about 150. So it's been a really fun journey and kind of a fun story, I think. Oh, that's awesome. So is that what it's grown from like 2014 to kind of current? That's a great growth trajectory. Yeah. So we're based in Montreal, founded by three former consultants at other firms. And today, two of the founders still run the business from Montreal. So we've grown in Montreal a lot. We also have offices in Toronto. And then I run our LA office, which is kind of our hub in the US. We have an Atlanta office as well. And then remote resources, as everyone else does across the country. And then we also have a South Korean office and opened an office in Mexico City just last year. That's fantastic. So I just want to kind of pick your brain on in a few areas. So I would imagine when an online business engages you for support and you go through the RFP process, can you just kind of talk to me a little bit about, so our listeners can get a sense how important it is to really get the data about their operations understood as you go through that RFP process? I know speaking from my own personal experience, that seems to always be a roadblock is when you want to really help a brand but you just don't have her data. Can you kind of just walk me through what the RFP process should really consist of versus what it really consists of? We put a pretty big focus on data capture. So when we're doing a typical project, and I'll just say a typical project, let's just say is designing a new warehouse for an e-commerce brand. The pillars of that project are going to be data, an on-site visit to assess what's happening today, and then a measurement of the physical infrastructure of the building. So we can take care of two and three pretty easily, but obviously one being the data is the most important and also the most collaborative. 
So we have a questionnaire that we share with all customers. And of course, it's really important that we get that right. So we invest a lot of time and resources on walking through every data field and why it's important and then adapting that to each business, especially in our industry or our, I'll say the size of company that we work with, which is probably 20 million in revenue to 500 million in revenue. Everyone's running a different system, right? A lot of people are still kind of mom and pop, don't have an ERP. And then there's a lot that are transitioning to an ERP. But over the course of a business's kind of lifetime, the master data, the way they treat it is going to end up being different. So you really have to dig in, open the raw data files, look at the column headers, ask the questions. And when you do that, it's really rare that you'd have an issue later on, right? Because you've kind of identified the big source of error that you could. And if you don't do that, that's where you run into problems where you maybe misinterpreted something because you didn't ask the question right away. So we really try to get a good handle on that raw data. And then from that point, things typically run smoothly. The expression that our founders like to say is garbage in, garbage out, which I'm sure everyone has heard. So if you're bringing in data that is inaccurate, of course, you're not going to be able to produce good results. Do you find that they like half the data, are they unfamiliar with the data? Do they really require you helping them make sense of it? I think that most of the time the data is there and you just have to probe enough to get what you need, especially in the world of e-commerce. Typically people are growing at faster rates or have aspirations to grow at faster rates. So when you get from that raw data to like a design model for this new warehouse and somebody's layered on 50% year over year revenue growth, and then they see what the footprint of that building is going to be, they may freak out. It's going to be a harder sell. So that's, again, a situation where you have to go back and forth. And maybe this isn't somebody who has a data science, data modeling background. So you have to explain to them why things are the way they are. I think a challenge too, especially again with a brand, it may be an e-commerce brand that is expanding into retail or vice versa, which we see a lot of retail expanding into e-com. There's no historical data to base the design on. So that's a challenge too, because sure, I know that you're going to sell these 200 SKUs, but this item, I can assume that the retail item is going to sell as an e-com item, but I don't really know for sure. So I think a, a general theme amongst customers is that they want to build for flexibility and we try to do that, but that presents challenges itself because typically a flexible design is maybe not so great at anything, but can also adapt as the business needs. So it's always a back and forth or push and pull. Do you think that you are more reliant on historical data or do you put more priority or emphasis on that flexibility about creating the need to be agile and flexible and maybe the historical isn't as relevant? It used to be historical data, I think, carried the day, but I find it maybe not to be anymore. Yeah. It's a good question. It really depends on the customer. An example where we wouldn't really build for flexibility. So we do a ton of work in the food service industry. So serving restaurants, that's sort of our legacy, big industry, grocery retail and food service. So 12, 13 years ago, that was almost every project. And now it's still probably 25% of what we do. Most of those businesses are still very traditional. They're still serving restaurants coming out of COVID now. Business is better than ever. So when those guys are designing a new facility, I'm not going to say to them, hey, you should really build for flexibility here because they know exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to distribute more to the current restaurants and then to expand the footprint of the restaurants they're delivering to. And then on the flip side, a brand that is expanding across channels. So maybe it's a small e-com brand that's now selling in stores or they're now they're selling to Costco. That would be a design where I would say, hey guys, maybe let's not use 100% of this footprint to build out this split case picking environment or an automated solution that is really tailored to one channel when the business seems to be going in a 
omni-channel direction. So it's really client-specific. Definitely examples in the last year where where I said, yeah, this is straightforward. You should design for growth of the core business. And other examples where I said, why don't we hold back on designing 100% of it? Let's do the 50%. Let's keep 50% of the space empty because it's too risky to try to predict the future for you guys. That's pretty insightful information because you know I speak to different people and that's about the, the most honest and raw answer I've heard in a long time because I think where brands do get it wrong is they think they follow the herd, right? We've got to build for flexibility when maybe they don't need to. The food services example that you just gave or vice versa, they're stuck in a traditional mindset by using historical data when in fact the organization or the market is moving in a completely different way, but you're using bad assumptions on outdated data. And it definitely depends. And you have to have that really understood up front. So another aspect that I really have been waiting to ask you to get your thoughts, I think our listeners are going to appreciate this question for your insight, but lots of guests come onto the podcast and they talk about strategy and it's very strategy centric about how important strategy is toward implementing automation. But your take is a little bit different and you emphasize really the execution aspect and how that maybe is more important than the strategy. Can you just kind of expound on that view and what do you mean by it exactly? Yeah, I think the philosophy is that I'm not trying to say that strategy isn't important. Obviously, I know that you have to have a strategy before you get into making big decisions, then those decisions are going to be backed by a strategy. But I think if you look at 100% of the budget pie, an operations executive, I think there's a huge weight on strategy and oftentimes not a big enough weight on execution. An amazing strategy doesn't get you very far in the four walls if it's not executed correctly. And if you take the perfect strategy not executed very well versus a very good strategy executed perfectly, and you asked every COO in the United States what they prefer, they would pick option two every single time. So I think as we grow and as we do more projects, more complicated projects, we see this repeatedly where there's so much weight put on these decisions up front these two ERPs that I need to decide between and the functionality between them is almost the exact same. And there's no emphasis put on who's going to be implementing that ERP, where in reality, what happens is you put all that weight on that decision and you think, okay, I made the decision. Now it's done. And 12 months later, you ended up picking the wrong partner and you still haven't implemented that system. So I think that that holds true across every implementation project where you really need to be conscious of the fact that once you make a big decision on how to proceed, you've only really just started and there's going to be tons of important decisions that happen along the way. And you really need to make sure that you have the right methodology and the right set of partners, the right team members internally to make sure that you get that strategy to come true in the end. Yeah. Or the timing of the strategy. It may be a great strategy, but not timed well prevents the execution from occurring because there are no resources assigned to the level of effort, maybe. So clearly you've had plenty of experiences with implementation. I'm sure plenty of successes, some failures. What are kind of, from your perspective, the common mistakes that happen with project implementations? Well, I think if you just were going across any implementation, probably the biggest mistake is like an overemphasis on timeline and budget that really drives the team to kind of make poor decisions. So there's so much pressure on a specific date where there's so much pressure on hitting a really, really tight budget that you end up not 
meeting the goals of the project. I think the budget side, obviously we set budgets and we follow them and projects are going to sometimes deliver on budget and projects are going to sometimes be over. And there's usually very good reasons when they do go over scope expansion, the business changes. I think on timeline, what I find interesting is that oftentimes you set like a go live date for something and you're really making a guess because you've got so many partners, so many people involved. It's not possible to say with certainty that you're going to be ready in six months, but you have to pick a date and you have to shoot for it. And then as you get closer, you might say, hey, there's a pretty big risk in going live on this date. We probably should revisit it, do an analysis and determine if it makes sense. And when you go back to the reason for that date, you end up finding out that it was kind of an arbitrary date that was set. It's kind of putting a necessary risk on the project. So I think oftentimes those things cause problems. You know, if I think of specific examples, we had to go live and it was an apparel company. The intent was to go live before the next peak season. So think busy around Black Friday. And we ended up sticking with the date and going live. And there was a system that was running bags and there was a system that was running boxes and our go live was for the bags. And what ended up happening was the volume that we wanted to go through the bag line, we weren't meeting. So we had to flip more volume back to the boxes. And it was a stressful time. And coming out of that, we all sort of said like, we probably should have just waited because we didn't get the intent that we needed. And then you fast forward to that client 12 months later, and they're super happy with the system and it's running way, way better than how it was running initially. And we were under pressure to do it by a certain date. Did we do it? Yes. Did we achieve the success that we wanted in the first year? No. But did we exceed expectations in the second year? Yes. That's sort of the, the other point that I wanted to make is that I think oftentimes the expectations are not set very fairly. People think that if they're putting in a new system, a new building that, oh, within three months, we're going to be at 100% or we're going to be twice as efficient. And really, these things take a lot more time. And if expectations were set and we said, hey, you know what, guys, the first year, you're probably still going to be worse than you were before. But by year two, you're going to be 50% better. I think everyone would be more understanding of the challenges that go into an implementation. And then <laughs> we would end up with a funner work environment during the project. This episode is sponsored by Amware Fulfillment. Amware is a third-party fulfillment company that provides pick, pack, and ship services to established direct-to-consumer brands. With fulfillment centers in every region of the U.S., Amware supports one- to two-day ground delivery to 95% of the country. In short, Amware takes care of everything after the click. Learn more at AmwareFulfillment.com. Mm -hmm. I'm victim of that example myself, like two implementations back to back. There was one last year and, you know, we got it in poorly time right before, right at the last minute before peak. And it was probably viewed as unsuccessful at the time. And then looking back, we're overshooting it today and outperforming. And I'm like, oh, this was great. But the, when you looked at it at the time, you felt like it was a horrible failure. Same thing with a another piece of technology, people had expectations incorrectly drawn up at the time. You got to take a longer window and let the numbers breathe a little bit and have those expectations up front. But I've, I've myself to calm that down. Some of the strongest leaders that I've met at companies really understand this well. Another example is of a company that has probably the most sophisticated WMS that I've ever seen. And when I first saw the facility and how they were operating, I was curious how long it took. You know, I expected that it was going to be several years, but I obviously asked the question and that was the answer. It was that we did our go live and 
we then did 12 iterations with that software vendor until we got everything right over a two-year span. And that's how they've achieved this success. But the senior leadership team always understood that and understood that from the start. So they were biting off sizable chunks all along the way. And when the system's turned on, they're not expecting magic. But in two years, if you see what they built, you'd be very impressed. Yep. That's probably the path I'd describe our own selves to be on. For our listeners that are most likely interested in some kind of major redesign or process change over the next year, what advice would you give them as it relates to doing it the right way? I mean, certainly this being one of them, having maybe some level set expectations of what to expect and having those expectations timed out appropriately. But what other advice would you offer up as to somebody listening how to do implementation the right way? Assuming like expectations are well set, let's just assume it's like a hundred to 200,000 square foot facility. There's multiple manager level and above people that are really 100% dedicated to running the day-to-day and they want to make a big change, redesign or implement automation or put in a new WMS. I think once you've set expectations, I think the next thing you do is you make sure that you have a good internal team that you can dedicate to that project. And then I think the next thing you do is you really need professional partners to do this right. You probably need a set of vendors. You probably need a couple of consultants or maybe not consultants, but a labor firm where you can pull in resources as needed because you're going to have more work than you typically would have. And again, you have these people who still have to remain in the day-to-day. So I think it's really about assembling a team and making sure that you have partners that are on board. You're creating a good, positive work environment for all so that you still want to make everyone feel like they're part of the team and we're all in this together. I think that's really important. And then after that, I think it's just making sure that you have a good project management office and everyone's bought into the methodology. Because once you do that and you're on a weekly cadence and you have a fun work environment, expectations are set, you're organized, you have good methodology, you're going to be able to solve all the problems together. You know, And that's really how I think you get the most out of these processes is you're able to sit down with people that you know and you like and you have a relationship with, and you can just really focus on solving the challenges that come up on a weekly basis. One other piece of advice I want to get your perspective on is 3PL. So a lot of times you're partnering up, I believe, 3PLs, whether it's through an RFP, but you're introducing and making those connections. What advice do you have for a brand that's not worked with the 3PL yet, but you know they're on the path of outsourcing for the first time to change or maybe change their fulfillment partners? But any particular advice you have for brands that are either changing providers or doing it for the first time? So we do a lot of work in the NetSuite world. So NetSuite ERP and a lot of those businesses kind of in our revenue range are on the smaller end of what I described before. So a lot of them are in 3PLs and co-manufacturers. So we're pretty well-versed in that space. I think in selection, I think setting expectations is also important. I think from our perspective is typically to be wary of the software component of onboarding a new 3PL, starting a new relationship, because I think it's easy to kind of see what they're going to do physically. Hey, they're going to pick orders for us and they're going to pack boxes for us. And it's going to be a dollar for this and $2 for that. And I can figure out what that costs. But I think overlooked often is integration that have to be set up and how am I managing my order to cash and procure to pay processes with that 3PL. So we try to understanding that most people probably have a pretty good idea physically what 3PLs are going to offer. And ultimately, they're probably offering the same thing on the warehousing side or very similar. 
But on the technology side, I think we've seen more of like a range of outcomes. So we like to tell the companies that are working with us that they can lean on us to support on the software side as well as the physical side, but just to make sure that you're asking the right questions around that so that there are no surprises when you go live. Yeah, that's good feedback. The whole conversation's been interesting. Jeff, where can people go to find more about either yourself or Lid Online? Yeah, so Lid Consultants, L-I-D-D Consultants on LinkedIn. And then our website is lid.com. Again, two Ds, L-I-D-D.com. You'll just be able to find information about the different services that we offer. Really, we're split into kind of two categories. We have our consulting arm, which is me, and then we have our technology arm. So I've talked a lot about technology, but really the services go hand in hand, but the consulting arm would sort of be thinking about, okay, how do I design this warehouse and how many racks do I need and how is my pick line set up? And then the technology arm would actually be implementing a new WMS or a new ERP. So all that information is available on our website. Awesome. We'll add a link to the bottom of the podcast and get it out. But thanks again, Jeff, for the conversation. And thanks to all of our listeners. This concludes our episode of Unboxing Fulfillment. Stay safe, everyone. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. 